theyeshiva.net. Hello, everybody, and welcome to JTV. Um, about a week ago, I was invited to go to a talk in central London given by one of the Internet's most popular rabbis out there. He's called Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. Now, initially, when I heard the name Y.Y., I thought, is this one of Elon Musk's children or something? But it turns out it stands for Yosef Yitzchak. And um, I went to hear him talk, and I put up my hand. I was the only one in the room that actually asked uh, a question. Um, Brits are a little bit more reserved. Um, but anyway, I asked the question, and uh, when I asked it, Rabbi Jacobson said, wow, that's a, that's a fantastic question. That's a great question. And I was so proud of myself afterwards, bragging to all my friends. And uh, a week later, I'm currently here in Monsey, New York, with Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson in person to speak to him. So that just, this just shows you what flattery can do to a person. Eh? <laughs> but Rabbi, thank you so much for Travel across the world, huh? <laughs> Thank you so much for making the time to join us on JTV. It actually happened to be a good question. <laughs> uh, I, I, Just for the record. Okay, I appreciate that. Um, so thank you so much for making the time. It's great to... This is my first time in Monty, actually. I've been to New York oh, a few times. Yeah, yeah, it's great to be here. It's really... Uh, it's a totally different world. It's amazing. Um, so I was looking through all... I mean, I've seen a lot of your content already, but I was looking through, you know, video content and things you've written and um, some articles. And, and one of the things that I feel like is a constant with you is you're, you're very into, like, just being real and, and walking the walk, not just talking the talk and being... You know, you talk philosophy, but it's also about, okay, tuchless, you know, what, what actually does it mean for me in day-to-day life? So I thought, let's talk about character development and, and, and growth and self-growth. And we can talk about it from Judaism's three main paradigms and pinpoints, which is relationship with myself, relationship with God, and relationship with other human beings. We call it Bain Adam Lechavera, Bain Adam Lemakom, Bain Adam Laatzmo. So I want to start off with God. Um, and I think this is, in, in many ways, the most, well, not necessarily the most challenging, but the hardest to make, to solidify and make real because we don't see God. He doesn't talk to us literally in the way that you would talk to me. Um, so the, f- the first thing I wanted to ask is just, how can any of us just, what, what are some of the practical things that you feel are ways in which we can solidify feeling God's presence in our lives when we don't have that day-to-day, uh, well, not day-to-day, but we don't have that, the, the interaction that we might have with another human being? Beautiful question. Another fantastic question. Both in England and in Muncie, you ask good questions. I think I'm going to run out of them soon. <laughs> You're asking, obviously, a very fundamental and important question, which is at the basis, the core of all of Judaism. There's a lot of different ways of going about it, but I think one very real and meaningful way that at least speaks to me is the paradigm that was taught by the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov was the founder of the spiritual Hasidic movement. He was born in the 17th century at the end, 1698. And I say this because his birth coincided with the birth of the European Enlightenment, which came from your side of the world. And the European Enlightenment redefined the Jewish people, just as it redefined the West. And one of its greatest challenges was the idea of God. Or in Nietzsche's words, God is dead. So Judaism at that point in history needed to dig in deeper and discover a much more sophisticated and profound approach that would be able not only to compete with the progress 
of the enlightenment and science in general and the idea of focus on the individual rather than on the pope, the church, or the monarch, because all of society changed. So till that point, the most common phrase in Judaism for God was Melech HaOlam, the king of the world, which was very simple to understand because everybody lived under monarchs. Whether you were in Russia or you were in England or you were in France, wherever you were in the world, certainly where Jews were, monarchy was the name of the game. Now when you spoke about God being the king of kings, Melech, Malche, Hamalachim, the ruler of rules, the ruler who doesn't have to be voted in, the ruler who won't die, the ruler who won't be usurped, the ruler who's not uh, sadistic, cruel, barbaric, insane, mad. It's like wonderful, instead of worshipping Louis XIV or Tsar Nicholas, we can have God. But at that point in history when the focus started to go away from the king to the individual. So the Baal Shem Tov said, we now have to find God within ourselves. Sure, God is the king of the world. Every blessing in Judaism, we'd identify God as Melech HaOlam. But not just the king of the world. That world is inside of you. The Baal Shem Tov started to talk about the teachings of Jewish mysticism that really every one of us is a manifestation of God in this world. God is reality. So God is not just some big, powerful, omniscient, omnipotent king who lives in the celestial heights and with a joystick controls the universe and can either reward you or punish you. That was a much more superficial view of religion. The Baal Shem Tov, like the Kabbalah in general and the Hasidic mystics in particular, brought out the idea, in the words of the Baal Shem Tov, God is Alts and Alts is God. God is everything, and everything is God. God is really a euphemism for reality, for the truth of reality. Now I want to ask you, where is reality? Can you have a relationship with reality? Say, how do you have a relationship with God? I want to ask, how do you have a relationship with reality? Can you have a relationship with reality? Well, the answer is, you are reality. You're in reality. We are all part of reality. We are all an aspect of reality. We are all in God. We're a part of God. We're an aspect of God. A relationship with God really means a relationship with your own deepest truth, with your own core, with the essence of all, with the essence of existence, with the essence of your own identity. Whenever I challenge myself to go beyond the superficial, to go beyond the blockages, to go beyond the fears, the insecurities, and to go into my innermost space, that is where I meet God. But that feels to me like beyond my day-to-day reality. Doing those kinds of things is where I'm tapping into something extra. My data reality is we have the derech hateva, the ways of the world, everything's natural. But the idea of God, of course, he's the one sourcing it all. It is all from him, and he powers it. But this idea of this personal being who influences my day-to-day life, that I should have trust in, that kind of stuff. As you say, tapping into that. Where do you go with that? How do you get get to that? I think, you know, when we realise on the most basic level, that every moment of life is a miracle. From the perspective of logic and randomness, the universe should have not existed. The planet should have not existed. The fact that there is a universe, the fact that there is a planet, every nuance of it, every iota of it, is so unlikely, is so miraculous, is so supernatural. Just the formation of one cell 
and how that one cell gets replicated into 50 trillion cells that makes up the human organism. I'm just talking about one organism, just the DNA molecule and what is contained in that genome. It is really, from a Jewish perspective, all an imprint and a manifestation of God's love and God's purpose. Each one of us was conceived in love. And the day you were born is the day that God said that the world is an incomplete place without you. The Talmud says that every person must say, for me the world was created, meaning there's something at stake in my existence for which the whole world was created. And we see it in nature. Every force of nature gives and takes. It's part of the food chain, part of the food web. There's not an element within our nature, within our planet, that doesn't somehow receive or give. The clouds have their role. Without it, we could not live. The solar cycle and the lunar cycle, lightning allows nitrogen to merge with oxygen so that it can be absorbed, absorbed in the soil and it can produce the amino acid, which is essential to our cell. Every component of nature, every worm, every particle, every wave, every component, every atom is part of a gigantic cosmic symphony. But how can you take that and then feel that personal connection with God? Is there a way of feeling anything one, one can do to feel a bit more of that personal touch? Because one of the things I personally struggle with is I don't struggle with intellectually with you know, God's existence and, and Judaism. It's not an intellectual struggle for me. But I have a very strong emotional side to me that, you know, says, really? Are you sure? You know, how can you be sure? And is this really something you can rely on? And, you know, it's, I, I think it's, 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 it is a tall ask to, 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 to trust in a being and to regularly communicate with a being that doesn't respond to you in words, and that doesn't give any guarantees of how they'll respond. Um, it's, you know, so, so for me, just saying it's, it's God, you know, it's reality, but it's, I'm trying to figure out how, how can one feel more of a personal touch and, and also personal confidence? Because I also think that it can often be easy in day-to-day life to talk about trusting God, my relationship with God, I pray to him. What about when things get really tough? What about in those moments of real panic or crisis? Do you really, in those moments when push comes to shove, how, how do you tear away those, those emotional fear, fears and doubts? And... You remind me of an old Jewish anecdote about an opera singer who did a rendition of Psalm 23, The oh, Lord is my, my Shepherd. One of my favorites. And it was an amazing rendition, and he got a standing ovation. And then an old Jewish woman gets up and says, do you mind if I do my own rendition of Psalm 23? He says, go ahead. It was one problem. She couldn't carry a tune to save her life. But she sang it with every fiber of her being, and people were crying. When she finished, he looks at her, he says, I don't understand. I did an impeccable rendition of The Lord is My Shepherd. Nobody shed a tear. They applauded me, but they didn't cry. You violated every law of singing and music when you did The Lord is My Shepherd. Yeah. But everybody was crying. Why? So she said... Because there is hurt. <laughs> she said, my dear friend, you may know the psalm, but I know the shepherd. Wow. There is 
a very intimate space in the human soul, the human being from the Jewish perspective is not just created in the visage of God, the image of God, but there was a professor, his name was Abraham Joshua Heschel, and he once said, when did God violate the commandment not to make any images replicating God? He says, when he created man, when he created the human being. Because the human being is really, so to speak, a replica of God. The human being is God's partner in the world. It's like a child's relationship with a mother and a father. From a Jewish perspective, that relationship is there. It's innate. Now, sadly, I can be alienated from my father. I can have anger towards my father or my mother. I may not be on speaking terms with them. But that's a tragedy. In a healthy family, the greatest joy in life is that a child can trust their parents. Parents can trust their children. Siblings can be close to each other. If that's true with physical parents, with biological family, how much more so is it true with every person's father and mother, not just physical, but also spiritual, psychological, emotional, cosmic? A relationship with God from a Jewish perspective is a deep relationship with the one who made you, who formed you, who is responsible for every moment of your life, for every breath you take, for every move you make, for every word you utter, for every neuron you fire, for every vibration, somebody who holds my hand and in good times cheers me on and in difficult times is there as a support for me. So a relationship with God is really one that depends on me. It's me going into the depth of my heart and opening myself up to the truth that my life is not a random mistake. I'm not a random mutation. I'm not just a valueless, infinitesimal blimp on the surface of infinity, just a heap of molecules that happen to become together. It's realizing there is purpose. When a child looks at a mother and understands that this mother gave everything to raise the child, this is a relationship. That relationship comes from the fact knowing my life I shouldn't take for granted. God sent me here. He put me here on a mission and he's here with me. Should we have expectations of God? We can, we can, I think the word expectations of God is a little bit of a, an oxymoron. Because if God is really God, I don't think I should even try to wrap my brain around it or around him. I think one of the mistakes that we make is we try to create a relationship by God that is mathematical, that is logical. We turn God into some mathematical equation or some law of science or chemistry. Laws of science are manifestations of God's wisdom, but they don't sum up God. You really cannot wrap your brain around infinity. Because the moment you do, it's not infinite. The moment I reduce God to my expectations, my dreams, my ambitions, what I think is right, what I think is wrong, I don't have a relationship with God. God, by definition, is that which transcends any brain and transcends even the laws of logic. Quantum mechanics is already an expression of things that are not logical. Certainly, the author of quantum mechanics. So I think part of that personal relationship with God is letting go of the need to wrap my brain around him and fitting him into any box. On the contrary, it's opening myself up to what is the mission God wants for me at this moment full presence. In fact, as you're saying, focus less on expectations, more about what does he expect of me. Right. 
or in the famous words of the author of the Tanya, Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi, who, who told the disciple, he says, you keep on talking about what you need. Can you also talk about what you're needed for? Or to quote our former president, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. But that line was already said by the founder of Chabad in the 18th century, in, in, in a different way. So I saw you said in a, in a speech um, that with regard to the question of the relationship with the head and the heart, which is so, so often spoken about in the Musa and character growth um, writings of Judaism, you said that the mind will always lose So let in the battle between the head and the heart, so let the heart win. What, what did you mean by that? I don't remember that particular lecture. I spe- unfortunately, unfortunately, I speak a lot. But what I, what I might have meant was, what I might have meant, I, again, I don't know for sure. It could have been, a, a, it might have been a, just a quote. It might, it, might, it might have been from an article or something. I thought it might have been from a speech. Maybe it was a, just a... Yeah. And was that so, what I think I meant was that sometimes we try to impose our intellectual ideas on our innate primal drives and we think that we can obliterate our, or eclipse, or repress, or suppress our innate primal drives through some logical equations, only to get more frustrated or become more neurotic. It happens to a lot of religious people. I think it happens to a lot of people. And I think it's important to honor and respect our innate primal drives because they're not mistakes. They're part of what make us tick. Yeah. It's like... You don't get rid of your genes. You are your genes. Your, your innate primal drives are essential to the fabric of your existence, of your being. It, it's, it's your DNA. It's, it's God's, your DNA sequence is God's imprint on your individuality. You don't obliterate that. You, you embrace it. You harness it. You work with it. You appreciate it. You honor it. And how does that? It's not bad. Your, your innate problems are not evil. Absolutely. But I remember this being specific with regard to a relationship with God. That you were saying this. That you should let the heart win. Um, in terms of, I think it was in terms of just day to day living and make, making choices. Oh, oh you probably referred to something else. What I was talking about was, you know, I once saw a beautiful definition that somebody asked, "What is a Hasidic story?" Hasidim have beautiful stories. And they said it's when you your soul surprises your mind. Uh, what I meant was that sometimes in life we approach situations and we try again to intellectually contextualize them. Now, if you're dealing with a certain business venture or a certain mathematical problem, you're trying to master a particular text, that's the way to go. And that's where the cerebral uh, mind of the Ashkenazic Jew is a very great blessing and of the Jewish people in general, the people of the book. When you're, let's say, confronting a crisis with your children or with your marriage or with your own childhood wounds or trauma or mental illness or mental anguish or loss or grief or a real a curveball in life, the last thing you want to do is try to make sense out of it. You reduce the experience to something that is not real. The first thing you do is you open yourself up to whatever experience you're experiencing and it's very vulnerable and you need not 
understand it. You need not make sense out of it. In fact, the less you make sense out of it, the more you'll be able to integrate it. Because it's actually an opportunity for you to grow very deeply. So don't reduce the experience to your finite tools. Expand your finite tools to incorporate an experience that is challenging you and stimulating you to become the person you're supposed to become. So this that's, my- that's, a, that's a painful process. Absolutely. Building muscle, you know, when you're lifting weights and your tissue tears, but it builds muscle, it's not an easy process. Yeah. Emotional muscle, because it's also built through pain. This, this leads nicely to the next topic that I wanted to go to, which is relationship with, one, with oneself. Um, because as you say, when you are faced with adversity and you have to, you're faced with a choice, am I going to start building my emotional muscle or resilience or am I going to crumble or just give up? That's sort of the same thing, actually. Um, what do you do when you, when, when, you're feel, when you feel very strongly? And it might not even be because you face adversity, but an individual, a Jew, feels a sense of apathy with regard to life, indifference about his or her responsibilities, um, trying to even serve themselves and do well in life. If, when people feel just a sense of, what's the point? What's it all for? What does it all matter? Um, h- how do you deal with that? Because that can often creep up on people without even realizing it, when things even just go a little bit wrong. You're just not in the mood of life. Yeah. They once asked a Jew, what's the difference between apathy and ignorance? He said, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> and, and I say this because... <laughs> you just got it. Because, <laughs> Just dwelling on it. It's very good. <laughs> yes. It's a good one. Thank you for the, for the feedback. Ignorance breeds apathy. The, the question has to be answered on two levels. One is a practical one and one is an existential one. Practically, sometimes, as they say, you just got to do it. <laughs> if I wait to do everything good until I'm in the mood, I may wait till my last breath. So sometimes you just have to say, you know this is a good thing. You know you're not going to regret it. You know this is the right thing. Go ahead and do it. I'm a writer, so I know there's writer's block. And what you do is you have to write and write. And in in Hasidic spirituality, there's an expression, the vessels draw down the light. Sometimes you don't have the light. You don't have the energy. Create the containers. There's a story in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Kings, about a widow who came to Elisha. She said she has no money. Her husband died. They want to take both of her children as ransom for her debt. And he told her to go borrow empty vessels. She had only one jug of oil, but the more vessels she borrows, the more the oil can fill all the vessels until the vessels are gone. And one of the deeper interpretations is that sometimes you feel you have nothing left, but create vessels, create containers, do things for people, get involved in a project, bring joy to people's life, embrace people, sow hope, become an ambassador of light, of love, even though internally you're struggling. The containers themselves are very powerful. That's on one level. On an existential level, I would say, very often our sense of apathy is anything but that. It's a betrayal. It's, a, it's, it's, it's coming from trauma. It's a feeling that whatever I did, I have failed. I'm not appreciated. I'm unworthy of love. It's really coming from an underlying wound that I'm not ready to address, and I'm avoiding it through apathy. 
In other words, we all love life really. We all want life really. Deep down, when you know who you are, everybody loves life and everybody loves love. But if I never got that love, I can't sit in that pain. It's too painful. So I say, I don't need love. Children do it all the time. When your primary caretaker is not giving you the love you need, it's too painful. To say that I'm living without something I need, I can't do that. So I say, I don't need your love, and I detach emotionally from myself. And I shut off the faucet of my emotions. I don't cry, I don't laugh. I don't get excited. I don't get angry. I'm just frozen. I'm numb. I'm like dead. So I have to have the courage to be able to go beyond the facade of apathy, of indifference, and say, what am I really afraid of? Where was I hurt? And to open myself up to the fact that my infinity is greater than any trauma. That the light of God that sits in me, the light of God that shines through me, is infinite and is absolute, and it never snuffs out my creativity, my goodness, my power, my potential. There's always that purpose for me in this world that is unique. Every one of us is an indispensable note in the cosmic symphony. And that note is yours and yours to cherish, but I have to be able to embrace it and believe in it and go beyond all those messages, all that mental chatter that says it'll be much easier to live if you just give up. It'll be much easier to live if you have no expectations. It'll be much easier to live if you're dead. Emotionally. And sometimes physically. So how, how do we tap into that light on a day-to-day basis, you know, when you're running late for a meeting, stuck in traffic? and uh... <laughs> I, th- I think this is where your personal relationship with God becomes indispensable. It becomes vital. Because what that means is, I could choose to say, there's no God, or even if there's a God, he's some cosmic force who couldn't care less about me. I can do that and I could go on living. But my life is just so much more shallow. <laughs> You know, you could live without humor. You can live without music. You can live without love. You can live without literature. You can live without relationships. You could. But it's just a shallower life. It's just a more impoverished life. You could live, and you may be a wonderful person. You can also live without God. It's just a shallower life. That's it. And it's a choice. And the choice I can make at every moment is, yes, I'm stuck in traffic. I have a headache, I'm having a hard day, I have a lot of responsibilities, I'm stressed out. Can I now let go and open myself up to the idea that every moment of life is a divine gift? Every moment of life is an opportunity to be a partner with God in the work of creation. Every moment of life is an opportunity for growth, an opportunity of bringing awareness and light into the world. The great masters had an expression that to be alive is to be an ambassador of the divine. I am an ambassador. And the question I have to ask myself is, what is my mission right now? When I'm stuck in traffic, what is my my marriage is going through a difficult time? King Esther was stuck in a palace of a Persian Queen, Queen Esther, was stuck in a palace. <laughs> this with, is 2021. <laughs> with with a drunken Persian monarch. And Mardukai told her those fateful words, Who knows if this is not the moment for which you have been appointed the queen of the superpower of the time Persia, 
in order to save the Jewish people from the impending Holocaust that Haman wanted to impose upon them, the genocidal plan to exterminate every Jew in the ancient Persian Empire. What he was telling her is, we look at it, we look at life and we say, it's not a coincidence and it's not a mistake. When I was born, where I was born, the unique circumstances of my life, my gifts, my challenges, my virtues, my setbacks, my experiences, both good and bad, my parents, my environment, my genes, my nature, my nurture, none of it is a coincidence, none of it is a mistake. I was brought here for a particular unique contribution and mission that I can and must make with my life. And when I can really become aware of this and realize that I have to work through those blockages and traumas that obstruct me from seeing myself that way, then that itself becomes a tremendous opportunity for growth. And every blockage you work through turns you into a much greater person than if you would have never had that blockage. The greatest leaders are not the people who haven't failed. Winston Churchill, your former prime minister, once said, my definition of success is jumping from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. <laughs> I think the, the Jewish perspective would be would, would, the Jewish perspective would be the definition of success is learning that every failure is only a failure if it doesn't become a source of education, a springboard to a much deeper awareness. And that's where you find God in your life. Right. See me, that, that, that inner spiritual presence, that silent, small, subtle, silent voice that tells you you're not damaged. Even if you were abused, even if you grew up in a dysfunctional family, even if you're dealing with inner challenges that are profound, you are not damaged goods. You are an ambassador of the divine sent into this particular place and circumstances to bring your unique light, which nobody else before you or after you can bring. And what if someone says, just with the whole apathy thing, but why? Why, do I, why does God need me to do this? I mean, what? <laughs> Well, I have to go through all this, you know, for, to what end? Okay, I've got a mission. Okay, I've got it to reveal. Okay, I'm not broken. But to what end? Why do I need to go through this roller coaster? What's the, what's the whole point ultimately? To reveal, but why? I think the deepest way of addressing this is in terms of a relationship. One could say, why should I love? Why should I connect to somebody else in my life? But today we know that innate to the human being is our need for attachment. In fact, cutting-edge psychology sees attachment disorder as one of the major forces that impair people's lives. If when I was young, I experienced attachment disorder, the lack of attachment with my parents or my primary caretakers, and it didn't give me the confidence, the resilience that I need to become an independent person, now, to deny that and say, I don't need attachment. I'm a hermit. I'm a self-contained human being. It's denying the fabric of who I am. It's denying the fabric of reality. So you might say, but Rabbi Waiwai, explain to me the logic why I need attachment. So I'll tell you what a big therapist here told me once, a good friend of mine. He says, as long as I ask my patients questions and they have logical answers, I know we're not getting anywhere. I did not hit the primal spots. Mm. How do I know I hit the primal spots? Emotional answers. When they stop giving a why, 
they'll shed a tear and they'll say, because that's who I am. That's who I am. And that's the deepest truth about your question. Logically, I can argue this way, I can argue this way. Did God really need any of this? Good questions. God is infinite and perfect and impeccable and flawless. What exactly was he missing? But the great spiritual masters understood that as long as you're playing the mind game, you're in a very external space of the self, an important place. We love the mind. We love logic. We love math. The whole Talmud is based on structures of logic. But those are manifestations. They're external layers of the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is about the essence. God in his internal deepest essence craved a relationship. He wanted to get married. He wanted love. And he chose you and he chose me to become those partners, to become his, his soulmate, so to speak. We're one. This is, this is who I am. So in my most primal space, I am attached. <laughs> and I'm in a relationship. And therefore, I need the relationship because that is who I am. I can deny it. I could say, well, it doesn't make sense. Okay. It may not make sense. Good question. But it's not going to take away the truth of who I am and what I really, really need. And we see it emotionally all the time. When we deny our need for attachment, it's because of our pain that we're not ready to address. And the reason for that is, from an evolutionary, an evolutionary biologist, psychologist will tell you, because millions of years of evolution taught us that we have to hunt together. We need the support of the group. We need the support of the system. Judaism will say it's much deeper than that. The DNA of creation is relationships. The DNA of creation is attachment. So before we go on to the last topic, which is relationship with other human beings, other people, um, I, I've seen that you've uh, written and spoke a lot about mental health generally, and we've been speaking a lot about that now. Just wonder before we move to the last topic, any kind of what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned from, you know, you also give counsel to a lot of people as well about the question of mental health, anxiety, especially in, in my generation. It's kind of, it's a broad, open-ended question. Some of the things that stand out to you is like some of the biggest lessons you've learned about the issue of mental health and anxiety today, especially for my generation. I find it really fascinating that despite the fact that we have so much more prosperity than our great-grandparents could ever dream of, and relatively speaking, we have much easier lives than they do. Nonetheless, there has been an explosion of anxiety in recent years. And you're talking about among the demographic and an age group that, relatively speaking, has it pretty good. They have food and they have support and they have shelter and they, a lot of them have success and a lot of them have excessive prosperity. Nobody knows where's all this anxiety coming from. It's not like all of us were tortured so badly. And I really feel, maybe wrongly so, that history evolves. From a Jewish perspective, all of history is an evolution from multiplicity to oneness, from fragmentation to wholeness, from brokenness to repair. We call it Lusakin Olam, the fixing of the world. And part of that is to be able to create fusion 
between God and humanity and between man and man and man and woman and woman and man, fusion and unity. And part of that is, it's almost like God is causing us to confront a lot of anxiety and trauma that has been buried in our psyches, not just in our own times, but with epigenetics, we know that our genes inherit the trauma of thousands of years. And I think in our generation, it's coming to the fore. I think a lot of what we're carrying from our grandmothers and grandfathers, generations back, are coming out now with one opportunity to be able actually to work it through instead of running away from it and avoiding it again. And focus instead on your existence. Because you, to survive day to, to day. Right. They, they have to survive. Right. We have time. Right. We have time. Yeah, that's the fact. We have much more yeah. time. I'm saying in, in many ways, our existence, because our existence is more comfortable, it requires more justification. Oh, of course. Of course. We, 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 have, we, we reflect. Yeah. And that reflection is a double-edged sword. Yes. Sometimes it can drive us sugar, Yeah. And we become couch potatoes. But it's an invitation to actually embrace life from the most earnest and genuine and deepest place, which is all a preparation for the ultimate fusion, for a divine awareness and oneness that pervades society and all of our world, which we call redemption. Redemptive consciousness is a consciousness that doesn't ignore my anxiety. It embraces my anxiety. It gets to the core of my anxiety and it retroactively heals it, not only for my generation, but for all the previous generations. So let's move on lastly to the question of interpersonal relationships. Um, I've seen you speak a bit about, well, quite a lot about, how to deal with people who frustrate you or hurt you. Give us a little sort of crash course on that in the next few minutes. <laughs> What's your perspective? Uh, yes. So let me tell you my, my <laughs> the most powerful statement that guides me comes from the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek. He asked, "What's the?" he lived in the 18th century, 18th and 19th century, he died in 1866. And he writes, what's the difference between children and adults? And we all know one of the differences is the children don't keep grudges. My child may say, Tati, I hate you. Mommy, I hate you. You're not going to get a part of my birthday cake. I'm not your friend anymore. But 20 minutes later, you give them some ice cream and they're your best friends. Adults keep gr- keep grudges. They can keep grudges for weeks, for months, for years, for decades. I tell you, I'm not speaking to you ever again. And a decade later, I won't invite you to my child's wedding, to my child's bar mitzvah, because of something that happened tw- 20 years ago or 8 years ago or 15 years ago. And the Rebbe asks the question, why? Children are less mature than adults. Adults are supposedly so much more According mature and developed. <laughs> Why is it they let go of grudges, a day later they forgot, and adults hold on to it, if we would live long enough for centuries? And this is what he says. I'm using my own words, but the concept is his. He says, the difference between children and adults is, children choose being happy over being right. Adults choose being right over being happy. As a child... My need to be happy is more important than my need to be right. I let go of the grudges and we become friends again. As an adult, I'd sometimes rather be miserable than be wrong. Why?
an inflated ego that is fueled by profound insecurity. It looks like an ego, but its engine is insecurity, which the child doesn't have. child is closer, more aligned with their innocence, with the divine light that flows through them. I want to be connected to you. I don't want to not be on speaking terms with my sister, with my brother, with my sister-in-law, with my mother, with my aunt, with my cousin, with my partner, with my employee, with the guy near me in the synagogue. I don't want to not be on speaking terms with you. It's hurtful. It's not the way to live. My soul misses your soul. Maybe we're not best friends. Maybe we're not destined to be best friends. Maybe we don't want to go out every Thursday night for a, for a, for a coffee or a drink or a schmooze. But I don't want to cross the street when I see you. I don't want to avoid you at the wedding. That's not how a person wants to live. But my deep insecurity tells me he's a threat to your life. It's my trauma taking over. And I start living a very narrow life, a very restricted life. And my decisions are pathetic. And I look at the children. They want to be happy. They don't want to be right. So the question I have to ask myself in life is, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? I once told somebody, why don't you make up with your brother? It happened 20 years ago. They got into a fight over a business. He says, let him apologize to me. I said, why don't you go to him and say, I'm sorry. He says, if I tell him I'm sorry, he's going to think that he was right. That's worse than everything else. For him, thinks, so I said, so he'll think he's right. Never. Justice. And you know what we do? We garb our dysfunction and idealism. <laughs> I'm not fighting from my own wounds. I'm fighting because justice. Because I was right and he was wrong. So I become paralyzed. I avoid my own pain by camouflaging it as a form of idealism. I'm doing it because of God. I can't speak to you because God doesn't want me to speak to you. How pathetic is that? We turn God (laughs) into something that is really another name for our own internal unresolved emotions. So that's the first thing I would say. We have to learn to be able to talk to each other, to forgive each other, to apologize not to hold on to to fights and disputes. I should say, there are, of course, unique situations, you know, if somebody is actively abusing you and you really have to detach yourself, obviously. There's also situations where you need healthy boundaries, you know. Sometimes we need healthy healthy, uh, fences, healthy neighbors make, I think Robert Frost said. We need boundaries, you know. You have to know what parts of a relationship are toxic, what parts of a relationship are productive, This is where mature responsibility comes in, where we sometimes need help and feedback from other people. But I think the fundamental principle has to be that when you're you're in a relationship with, with truth, with your own truth, you're in a space of love. You're in a space of of affection. You're in a space of of closeness. Hillel famously said to the convert, to the non-Jew, who wanted to study Judaism, standing on one foot. And Hillel said, what you dislike to be done to you, don't do to anybody else. That's the whole Torah. Everything else is commentary. Now go study the commentary. This means anything in Torah is a commentary on this statement. What you dislike to be done to you, don't do to anybody else. So living in that oasis of love, that's where we find ourselves. That's where we find God. That's where we find hope. That's where we find redemption. 
Wow, well, Rabbi Jacobson, this, this segment is called Jewish Wisdom on JTV, and you definitely gave us a heaping serving of it in this uh, segment. So thank you so much for your time, for letting me come to your, uh, your, your hub in Monsi. And um, yeah, just really appreciate your time and hope we can do this again sometime in the future. Thank you, absolutely. Great to meet you. Thank you for your work and spreading the light and the love. Thank you so much. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.